Welcome to Pod Zero. I'm your host, Chuck Nice. Pod Zero is a pop-up podcast made especially for Climate Week NYC and is made possible by the My Weather Radar app and the Union of Concerned Scientists. We can't thank them enough for their support, and we encourage our listeners to support them in return. On this episode, Climanomics. That's not a real word, but yeah, you get the idea. The human-caused climate crisis, or H3C, can actually propel us to economic prosperity while we simultaneously save our own butts from this existential threat that's happening whether we like it or not. We can transition to a new economy and allow markets to lead the way, but only if we have the political and social will to do so. To help us understand how, I spoke to econ rock star Constance Hunter, principal and chief economist at KPMG. Constance is responsible for economic thought leadership at the firm. She works closely with KPMG and client executives to identify the inflection points, risks, and opportunities that arise in a constantly evolving economic landscape. She's deeply concerned about the environment and how we can turn this bad situation into something good. You're a person who cares about, mm-hmm. you're, you actually care about this subject, and I know that from our conversations. Right now, I don't think we're in the best place, but you know, I'm gonna let you be the economist and, and talk about that. Um, you know, the climate is fragile, markets are fragile. Markets are elastic though. They, especially in America, they boom, they bust, they, they go up, they go down. Climate doesn't work that way. Climate is kind of a rolling downhill type of thing and you gotta stop it before it gets out of control. So are markets managing themselves with concern to climate crisis or is it all reactionary? Is it, you know, what, what's going on in your world? Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll take, I'll jump back from that question first a little bit and sure. talk about the work of Bill Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize in 2018 for his work on um, modeling the impacts of the climate change. And he started this work back in the 1970s and was pounding on the table and people were not paying attention. So Bill Nordhaus, who won the 2018 Nobel Prize, um, did an analysis of the cost to the economy of a one degree change in the temperature. And okay. he does it on a sliding scale. And of course, the greater the temperature change, right. the greater negative impact on economy. Absolutely. Problem is, when we transition um, to a cleaner energy uh, economy, that's what we call a shock. Um, so it'll shock existing industries like the fossil fuel industry okay. and produce winners and losers. Never okay. in response to your question about are, are companies and markets being proactive or are they being reactive? So certainly in a market like the reinsurance market where their whole business is based on understanding risk, they're being very proactive. Right. Um, but we did an analysis of companies uh, and how uh, and whether or not they mentioned uh, climate risk as being material to their bottom line in their annual report. Okay. And we, we did a natural language processing analysis of the annual reports um, through software on Bloomberg. And cool. what, we, what we found was when the year we started this in 2006, no companies mentioned climate risk as material to their bottom line. Okay. Fast forward to today, 100% of listed energy companies in the S&P 500 mentioned climate risk as material to their bottom line. Um, wow. 
And then it's on a sliding scale depending upon the industry. And what's so amazing to me is the industry that has the least mention of climate risk as material to their bottom line is the healthcare industry. That's and insane. So, yeah, of course it impacts health outcomes. Right. right? More than anything. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had on the show um, Peggy Shepard, who is the founder of We Act for Environmental Justice. And uh, one of the uh, key issues with respect to climate is the fact that the health outcomes for poor people are disproportionate to everyone else. I mean, everything is disproportionate when you're poor in America. That's all there is to it. You know, well, black, black you're poor anywhere, really. This is true. This is true. But uh, it, it, when I say it, it seems that when you juxtapose it against the tremendous wealth of this country, it's that much more glaring. What I don't understand, let me ask you this, okay? If I'm an insurance company in the healthcare industry, I am very concerned about this because quite frankly, those responsibilities for care will affect me directly. But if, yeah. I, if, if I'm a provider, now I'm listening here, don't, don't think ill of me when I say this, okay, Constance, okay. please. But if I'm a provider, and I'm a little bit of an evil genius, perhaps I don't really care about the health outcomes because it increases my business. Yeah, so you're, you're talking about the costs of yes. healthcare versus uh, collecting the premiums. And, and so I guess there's a couple ways to look at this. Um, you know, from just an actuarial perspective, the way our system is set up, um, insurance companies are incentivized to think about your health until you reach the age of 65. And once you reach the age of 65, you go on government funded healthcare. And uh, because uh, health insurance presently is mostly provided via employers. And of right. course, the um, Affordable Care Act seeked to shift that, which from an economic perspective, actually to me makes more sense. I don't think it should be linked to the employer. And, and one key reason is that um, when you move employers, you really don't have a choice with regard to who they've chosen as their healthcare provider. Correct. So people switching, um, you might go from Oxford to Blue Cross Blue Shield or to different companies. And so um, if, if this was purchased directly by the consumer, right? It, health insurance companies would have an incentive to maintain you for life. Um, they'd have a much deeper connection to the customer. And that would naturally, through the design of the market, incentivize them to care about long-term outcomes. And so when we tie this all back to climate change, what we need to think about here is what types of market design do we want to put in place? And how agile are we going to be? Because any kind of market design that you set up, you have to be open to the fact that you need to tweak it along the way as you learn more about the participants in that market and the incentives that they respond to. So, um, you know. Yeah. See, yeah. This, is, this is what I love about talking to you because that is such a simple, profound, and brilliant explanation about one, not only the connection to climate, but more importantly, the overarching connection to our health as a country, a country that spends more than any other country and have the poor, much poorer out outcomes for our health. 
you know? So, I mean, these are simple, and this is when people talk about letting, when they talk about market-based solutions, which, you know, I'm always, I always get scared when I hear market-based solutions. Well, you shouldn't necessarily get scared when you hear market-based solutions because they don't always have to be bad if you think right. about resource allocation. And so I was just looking at some research um, in preparation for this call about um, how well renewable energy is working in, in different countries. And of course, China, which is a centrally planned economy, has spent a lot of money on renewable energy. China is a centrally planned economy. And you would think, okay, great. They've been able to really attack this from a century plan way. They don't have a lot of market incentives, but in fact, aspects of their renewables market are breaking down. So for example, they aren't producing a lot of the power near to where it's needed. So they, they lose a lot of that power in transport. So, so there is a non-market solution which really isn't terribly efficient. So market design is really, really important when you're thinking about a public good. Right. Because you want, um, you want the market and market incentives to help allocate scarce resources, but you also want the market design to take into account the fact that this is a public good. And so there's the potential for free riders um, and, and those that don't necessarily benefit in the short term to take advantage of the system. So, so the best of both worlds is making sure you have good market design that harnesses the best of, of market solutions to have an optimal allocation of scarce resources. Okay, now see right there, the way you just put it, I'm very comfortable with market-based solutions, okay? Um, it, 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 I, what, what scares me is when you have the market marginalizing those who cannot uh, partake in the market. So, you know, the market itself starts to push people out and and when you have something that is a utility or a public good, that's a bad thing as, you know, as far as I'm concerned, but you know, I'm a bit of a hippie. Um, when I'm saying it is possible to do this and to do this well. So, um, you know, a great resource for understanding market design is, is Alvin Roth's book, who gets what and why. So he won the, um, I think 2012 Nobel prize for economics. And he talks about the market design for a number of different things. Um, um, including, uh, you know, kidney transplants uh, and, and organ transplants, all the way to um, how markets are designed around electronic trading. Okay. And, give me uh, a second. Give me a second. What, what, what's that book again? <laughs> called Who Gets What and Why? Who and it's by what? Alvin Roth. And it's a really important part, I think, of the climate conversation. Absolutely. Properly incentivize people to make these long-term decisions. Because we know that you know, people are very short-term in nature, As, hard, well, long-term decisions. So, so now let's, let's, let's touch upon that for a second, because two things that you just brought up, um, one of which is when you're doing something very large, um, like shifting an economy, uh, can the market do that alone? Or is that something where you have to have a public-private partnership and governments must be involved to incentivize um, the, the, the shift to happen. For instance, now I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not an economist, but I'm just gonna say, all right, after World War II and everybody's coming home, we created something what I call the car economy. Mm -hmm. 
We had cars rolling off the assembly lines and we had roads being built. So you're building the roads, you need the infrastructure to actually support the cars that are being rolled out, right? Mm -hmm. So now you're building the roads. What happens as you build the roads? Well, now you have new communities that pop up around the roads. So what happens from that? Well, in these new communities, you now need a shopping mall, you need a grocer, you need, so I need a gas station, I need, so that, that all happened because the government got involved to make that happen. Well, I think you're right, actually. And, and it's so funny you bring this up because um, I was just um, thinking about how is what we're going through now actually really similar to the period right after World War II. Um, we have a budget deficit of 13% of GDP. And just after World War II, we had a budget deficit of 21% of GDP. So, um, and they're similar deficits in that they're financed by an increase in savings and pent up demand. So during the war, there were shortages, people couldn't spend. So those people who were making money, their savings went up and they helped finance that deficit. That is exactly what we're having now. We amassed $3 trillion of household savings in the second quarter. Now, some of that is being worked down as we proceed through the pandemic. But the point is, is that our current deficit is savings financed. And um, so there, and there's pent up demand, which is what we had coming out of World War II. Um, the second thing is that we're probably going to need more fiscal stimulus in order to um, make sure that our economy continues to grow through and to the other side of the pandemic and harnessing that fiscal stimulus in a smart way um, to ensure that we meet long-term objectives like having climate sustainability make a lot of sense. So um, there is certainly um, scope for the, for the vision that you laid out. And then I would just add a second thing, which is that um, we have also uh, an imperative towards energy independence, uh, which um, obviously has security uh, features to it. And, and really, we don't want our economy ever to be hostage like it was in the 1970s to others providing us energy. So um, we've been providing um, and you can argue whether they're good or bad, but because of that energy independence imperative, we've been providing subsidies to the fossil fuel industry in the United States. We can easily help transition that to more uh, climate friendly and carbon neutral approaches to energy supply. With respect to what you just said, and I'm, okay, when you talk about subsidies to oil companies, and there are a lot of people who say that has to be because uh, oil is a commodity that is so necessary and so integral to uh, the running of our economy. This is why these subsidies must continue. Well, I would just say, so our whole economy runs on energy. Everybody, right. If we didn't have energy right now, we couldn't be doing this, this, this video. Uh, exactly. We need, lighting, we need fiber optic cables. Yeah. This is all run on energy. Our whole economy is run on energy. Okay, Everything. given, given. But here's what I want to know. Here's what I want to know. So our whole economy does run on energy. There are people who say that you can't have the government get involved with the shifting of that economy to a green energy economy because you're indeed picking winners and losers. I would actually frame it differently than picking winners and losers, right? Okay. So there are industries that, again, because we have a public good, it makes sense 
for the government to devise incentives so that in those industries can help provide a public good. And so if we go back to ener energy industry subsidies, right, we had a public good of energy independence. And after our experience in the 70s with, with the oil embargo, that made a lot of sense. That was a really important public good to provide. Um, the thing is, is that these things snowball. Um, bureaucracies are, are always leaning towards more complexity, more entrenchment. And so when you're trying to promote something new, obviously there are going to be winners and losers. And the question is, if I go back to this market design um, uh, feature of this, because it's so important that you, that you create good market design. That can make a huge difference in how things happen and whether or not the winners or losers are, are whether or not it's fair, right? Like the fact is there are always winners and losers. It's a public good that we have food security. So that has resulted in us supporting farmers. Um, and that still makes a lot of sense. But again, how do we engineer this transition so that um, you can fairly create opportunities for legacy um, companies to participate. I mean, we, we see a huge zeitgeist shift towards people saying, I'm going to eat vegetarian, you know, one day a week, or I'm going to, I'm going to ship to, to, uh, you know, what are the, there's a bunch of companies that produce like meat substitutes, right? Yeah. Like eating those instead of eating meat. And, and that's a shift that's happening already in the zeitgeist. Um, if we want to nudge that along, the, and we do it from a government-sponsored uh, uh, program, we need to make sure that that program provides opportunities for legacy uh, providers to help to participate as well as for new entrants to participate. If we crowdsource some sort of solution, market-based solution and good market design, I think we can do it, right? If we crowdsource all of our energy towards, towards finding technological solutions, I think right. we can do it. Right. I love that. I love that. Like an X prize for the economic plan for our green economy, the new yeah. economy. I like, yeah. like, oh, I like that idea. I, I, that's very encouraging. Like, you know, um, yeah, okay. I feel better. <laughs> well, and there, there are plenty of people with foundations out there who, who give away money. So let's, uh, let's challenge one of them to create a prize for this. Thanks to Constance Hunter, Chief Economist at KPMG. We thank her for her deeply thoughtful insights. Up next is Dr. Varun Sivaram. Until recently, Varun was the Chief Technology Officer of Renew Power, India's largest renewable energy company. He is currently a senior research scholar at Columbia University. He is an expert on clean energy technology, climate change, and sustainable urbanization. He's the author of Taming the Sun, Innovations to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet, and his new book, Energizing America, A Roadmap to Launch a National Energy Innovation Mission, offers policymakers a strategic framework to triple federal funding for clean energy innovation in five years. All right, and now we have uh, the great pleasure of talking to Varun Sivaram, who uh, was recently the Chief Technology Officer of Renew Power, India's largest renewable energy company. Um, but he is now a senior research scholar at Columbia University. He is an expert in clean uh, energy technology. 
uh, climate change and sustainable urbanization. Uh, he is also uh, the author of Taming the Sun, Innovations to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet. And he has a new book that is launching Climate Week uh, called Energy Energizing America, a roadmap to launch a national energy innovation mission. Varun, welcome. How are you? Thanks for having me, Chuck. I, I'm pumped up and excited to be here. Yeah, man. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm amped up to talk to you. Uh, you know, I, I was joking before we uh, started rolling that, uh, you know, you're a brilliant guy. You're young. You're good looking. You're smart. You're successful. And when I talk to you, it's like looking in a mirror. I just I just love talking to you, man. <laughs> but um, I really want to talk about your new book because I think that you in your book have really um, touched a really just wonderful point of interest for the entire globe, which is, man, we can actually create prosperity and we can create innovation and we can create uh, an era of good times that could come out of this crisis, which is, I mean, dude, that's amazing. First of all, just to be thinking like that. So thank you. But before we get into that, if you take renewables total, what kind of penetration are we looking at? What is the efficacy and what is the outlook for kind of like if we were in this particular track right now, what would the outlook be, say 2050? Well, let me start with the good news. Okay. Um, today, uh, renewable energy, wind and solar power are the fastest growing power sources on Earth. And they're also the cheapest power sources on Earth. And this is a recent development. Solar today is cheaper than coal. It's cheaper than natural gas. It's cheaper than everything. Um, and that's thanks to tremendous cost declines and growing deployment around the world. Um, so that's the, the really good news. Now, the, the let's call it the not so good news, but I'll give you the glass half full version, is renewables today account for less than 10% of global electricity production uh, from wind and solar in particular. Of course, hydro is also a renewable and, and, and that's a, a large percentage. Um, but, but wind and solar are the fastest growing ones. And so between now and 2050, wind and solar are going to have to multiply by more than or, an order of magnitude in order for by 2050, a majority of the world's electricity to come from wind and solar and nearly most of the world's electricity to come from uh, zero carbon sources, if not all of it. And that's the kind of rapid growth primarily in renewables, but also in other zero carbon sources, whether it's nuclear or hydro or carbon capture. That's the kind of growth we're going to need to drive the globe's emissions to zero, and net zero. Uh, and net zero is what we need in order to combat climate change and rise to this climate crisis. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I just heard you say that um, it's now cheaper. And uh, I didn't know that, to be honest. I, 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 I had... The last thing I read, and this was a couple of years ago, was that it would be cheaper. But you're saying that we've actually achieved that, that we're now looking at kilowatt hours costing less coming from solar than they do coming from your traditional fossil fuel or your traditional power plants. Is that the case? That, that's exactly right. It, it is a little more complicated. So you're right. The, a kilowatt hour of solar is cheaper than a kilowatt hour of literally any other power source today. Now, to be clear, Solar can't do all the things that a fossil fuel plant can do. 
a fossil fuel plant can ramp up and down on demand. Right. So it's highly reliable. Um, a, a solar plant though, paired with batteries or paired with other advanced technologies, such as digital technologies, can start to do many of these things. You can start to store electricity and offer it on demand. Right. In fact, in India, where I just was, our company, Renew Power, uh, won the first contract in India to pr produce on-demand renewable power, where you have renewables from solar and wind, but you also have batteries backing it up and you produce it all lower than the cost of coal power. So it's a really big milestone that we can produce reliable power lower uh, in cost than conventional fossil fuels. And that's why I think you know the, the prospects for renewables are fantastic. The next three decades, they're gonna go rapidly. The question is, can we make them grow rapidly enough to hit net zero in the coming decades? Right, and you know, so first of all, let me just say that it's, it's funny you say that I just switched over to not just but I switched over to solar as a provider, which is something that you can do. You can say I want my energy to come from solar and wind as opposed to whatever your power company is, you know, um, and I do that because I want to I want that I want it to grow. So people don't know that you can actually support these technologies, but let me ask you this. Let's say everybody became like me. I want to support this technology. Is our grid capable of of handling that? I mean, don't we have to make don't we have to change the grid too at the same time? That's exactly right. Um, whether you're here in the US or you're in India, you're going to need grid upgrades. You're going to need transmission lines that connect far away desert regions where you have a lot of sun uh, or you know, windy plains uh, to the demand centers, major cities. Um, so you're gonna need grid upgrades on the long distance side. You're also gonna need grid upgrades locally. You're gonna need distribution grids. These are the power lines you see in neighborhoods. Right. Distribution grids that are really smart, that know how to handle the solar panels and batteries at your home or nearby uh, community solar farm um, or a microgrid on a campus and operate these all very efficiently so that we can meet our energy needs without wasting too much money and building too much infrastructure and using distributed renewables as well as large-scale renewables. So in the future, the electricity system is going to be way more complex than the electricity system of the last century. Mm -hmm. And in order to, to make it all work, uh, we need technology and innovation as well as investment in grids. Well, as, 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 as one very wise environmentalist uh, once said, the grid is a disaster. It's a disaster. Um, let me let me just. That's pretty good. I read a oh god, this was like years ago about emerging economies that don't have the infrastructure for power, and what they do is they make these microgrids. Is is that something that might work here, or is that too much? Is that too much for us to have to do in terms of revamping the infrastructure? Well, it's not one or the other. Look, I think we're going to need oh, okay. a very robust central grid, a grid that spans the entire country, a nationwide high voltage direct current grid backbone. Okay. But I think we're also going to need microgrids in many places. In fact, you look at California. California yeah. is a place we've got wildfires raging. The utility PG&E is forced to shut off many sections of the grid to prevent fires. And in, in, in doing so, they cause blackouts. Well, microgrids, uh, if, if you know campuses or neighborhoods 
were able to operate autonomously using their own distributed resources for a time, well, they could ride through that blackout period. So right. I think the combination of microgrids and macrogrids, and in the middle, mesogrids, which is a term I'm trying to popularize, I think at all levels, these different length scales of the grid, again, operate in a very complex fashion, uh, is going to make us not only clean, but resilient and affordable. And you just can't do that if you only rely on one single mode. Right. The very, very large or the very, very small. All right. So now I want to get into your book. But before I do, I want to ask you one last thing about this idea I had. And I got it from the Transformers. And and it's they have these things called energon cubes, right? So, but energon cubes, they harvest and they're like little batteries, right? And so I can't, I can't, I was like, why can't we do that with solar and wind, right? So we have a place like in the desert, there's nothing in the desert except sun. That's the only thing there, right? So what we do is we set up these massive solar farms and then we take batteries and feed the solar energy, the energy that's created into batteries. And then we take the battery as the distribution commodity to the point of demand. Am I crazy for thinking this, that the Transformers Energon Cubes could actually become something real? Look, Chuck, you are not crazy for thinking that we need something real innovative because let's go back and ask why we're asking this question, right? Um, in electricity, we have to balance supply and demand every second, every instant. It's different from gasoline for your cars. For your cars, you can store the gasoline somewhere and then you go up to the gas station, you fill up your car and it, it gets stored in the tank. It's an energy dense fuel. Right. Electricity doesn't work that way. You gotta use it as soon as you produce it. Right. The energon cubes are one way to do that. Look, that, that doesn't work today because the batteries are too expensive. It's right. cheaper to build a grid, right? But you can think of a bunch of innovative ways. For example, in the future, we might take our excess power. You know, there's too much sun, or there's too much wind. So our excess solar and wind power, how are we gonna store it? Maybe we'll produce hydrogen. And that hydrogen is now a fuel that I can use to run some industrial processes. I can even fuel heavy trucks, or I might store it in batteries. Now, I don't know if I'll be transporting batteries, but if they get cheap enough, maybe I'll be able to transport energon cubes. There, there are a bunch of different things. You can compress air and store it in a cavern. There are a bunch of different creative solutions to storing this electricity. At the end of the day, that's the name of the game. If we have a ton of surplus solar and wind, how do you store it or how do you use it? Maybe you can ramp up uh, sources of demand like electric vehicles can charge exactly when there's surplus electricity on the grid. So we got to think about this portfolio of creative solutions. God, that is brilliant. I'm telling you, man, that's so cool because you're taking energy you're making it into it, it becomes mechanical and then you turn it back into potential. And that's I mean, that's brilliant. That's I mean, really, that's OK. I get excited. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. OK, <laughs> let's get into your book, because here's what I love about your book. It is so hopeful in the the tone. OK, I was I was reading it and I'm like, oh, man, this is so great. And at the same time, I was like, oh, man, this will never happen in America. <laughs> Not cool. <laughs> Not cool, man. All right. So here's the deal. Um, what you're basically saying in your book, uh, which let me read the title again, because let's plug this thing for real. It is Energizing America, 
a roadmap to launch a national energy innovation mission. And the, the, the subtitle is actually the real, is the real deal. Is what, what, what you're talking about is kind of like a, an energy moonshot. What, what, what you're talking about is uh, using the government and all the levers of government, if I'm correct, just tell me if I'm wrong, all the levers of government um, and turning them into like a Sherpa to help us climb uh, the summit that is energy production and usage and innovation and everything that goes along with it. Am I right? And tell me more. You got it exactly right. Uh, I, I love how you called it an energy moonshot. That's exactly what we need. Look, we've got a great history in this country of national missions. They've developed life-saving drugs. They have made our country safer. They've spawned Silicon Valley and the internet. And now I think we need to do a major push on clean energy innovation, both because clean energy innovation, new technologies are critical for fighting climate change. And also because the US has fallen behind and there is a lucrative opportunity to prosper as the world transitions to clean energy. And we're gonna get shut out if we fail to invest in innovation in countries like China or Germany and Korea and Japan all invest in their own innovation missions. And so that's why I'm so excited to, to propose the most detailed plan that's out there. Uh, that, that, that's what makes our book a little bit boring in the, in the latter half. And, and Chuck, you're the man for reading through the whole thing. Hey man, uh, I, 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 I went to the appendixes and all, man. And uh, listen, it, but, but that's what made me hopeful, okay? Because you are taking a comprehensive approach to energy and making it not this one thing, okay? So you are looking at energy not as this one thing that we have to do something about. You are looking at it as a platform across which we rest all of these other approaches to solving a much bigger crisis, which is the global climate emergency. But in the process, what happens is you end up creating um, um, these new innovations, which end up cre creating industry. Am I right? Um, did I do that right? Absolutely right. You, you end up, you know, if you meet our target, which is tripling government funding for innovation to $25 billion per year by 2025, mm -hmm. you know, we'd still be, you know, only half the way to the level that we support health innovation, biotech. But still, you get to that $25 billion number, you're going to support a million long-term American jobs, a million good American jobs all over the country in industrial clusters. There are real domestic benefits in addition to the domestic and global benefits of combating climate change. Because there's no way the world transitions to net zero emissions without the new technologies. In fact, new technologies that haven't reached markets today are gonna account for half of the emissions reductions we need to get to net zero. If you don't have innovation, you don't get to net zero. Right, uh, $25 billion a year. Now, what do you think? You think, young man, do you think we can just print money? Is that what you think? Okay, the truth is we can just print money. Don't tell your mother. Uh, <laughs> do you think there's a danger that if we actually uh, start carbon capture, sequestration, right? In, in, in conjunction with decarbonization, that people will say, hey, we're handling this problem, man. Now, now we can, you know, we can continue to burn fossil fuels. Look, I'd love to live in a world where we could have 100% renewable energy, not ever have to burn fossil fuels again. We don't live in that world. 
especially in the developing world where you have these countries that really do depend on fossil fuels, finding ways to allow them to slowly ramp down those fossil fuels while swiftly ramping up renewables is critical. And carbon capture can help us to do that. Of course, we also have to make sure that we reduce air pollution from these plants. Uh, we have to make sure that we reduce the damaging effects to the environment of mining. So there's a lot of stuff we got to do, but we are not going to live in a world without fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. And we better find a way to make that world as clean as possible. Wow, man. That's see, that's good straight talk. Good straight talk. You know what I mean? Because uh, listen, I'm a tree hugger, you know got several trees that have restraining orders against me. I don't care. I can't stop hugging the trees, okay? That's all there is. I might have a problem, man. But <laughs> but the truth is that there are realities at play here as well, and that's what you're talking about. Let's look at this from a realistic standpoint. Thanks to Dr. Varun Sivaram. Please check out Taming the Sun, Innovations to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet, and his new book, Energizing America, a roadmap to launch a national energy innovation mission. And thanks to Constance Hunter, Chief Economist at KPMG. The takeaway from both conversations is we can win this battle and we can be better for it if we take action right now. What will you do to help solve this problem? Thanks for listening. I'm Chuck Nice reminding you that outside of survival, there's no reason to listen to scientists.